Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello, all. Today we have some very special guests. I'll say hello. 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 So we'll get started. So I'll start with introductions. Everyone's been asking us about our thoughts on the Cleopatra docuseries on Netflix. So we have two experts on reception, race, ethnicity in the ancient world and modern reception. Professor Catherine Blois and Heba Abdelkawad. Uh, so I'll read both of your bios real quick and then we can get we can get started. So Catherine is an associate professor of ancient history at the University of Toronto and co-founder of Everyday Orientalism. Her work centers on the socioeconomic and environmental history with a focus on ancient, particularly Roman Egypt, as well as on ethics and decolonial entailments of antiquity-related fields. She's the author of many works, which I won't go into, but her upcoming monograph is entitled Inventing Alexandria. So very much looking forward to that. And Heba is an Egyptian heritage and museum specialist and she's a project researcher for the AHRC-funded project, Egypt's Dispersed Heritage Views from Egypt at the Institute of Archaeology, University College of London. This project is aimed at amplifying the voices, visibility, and validity of modern Egyptian communities in UK museums. She's previously led various curatorial roles as well, and she specializes in the history of Egyptian archaeology and Egyptian perceptions and representations of ancient Egypt. And she was selected as one of the most influential 21 Egyptian women in 2021 for her community work in the heritage sector. So welcome you both to the podcast. Thank you for, for being on. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. So to get started, I'm going to call on Kara here to give us a little background to the quote unquote debate with the Cleopatra docuseries. If people don't know, what's essentially the, the debate going on? Why are people upset about it? Why is it a controversy? Uh, yeah, so as, as I see it, thanks, Jordan. As I see it, we've got a docu-series that includes live action actors to reenact parts of Cleopatra's life. And the actress who has been cast looks, there are a number of overlapping issues of misperception and perception and reception. But the actress who has been cast to play the Cleopatra VII, the Macedonian, Greek, Egyptian queen, is darker than many Egyptians would like. And there's the discussion of what her background was, who her mother was, was she part Egyptian? And that, that blows up. And there are things on the interwebs where people say things like, she is of pure Macedonian blood, how dare you take Egypt's heritage? And, and then... There's the other issue, which is that the Netflix documentary was produced by Jada Pinkett Smith, who is a Black American, and it brings in a political component and agenda that is disconnected from the Egyptian components <laughs> that are complicated within Egypt, just without bringing in an American component. And that so that further complicates it. And and one wonders who owns Egypt, who owns even Greek or Roman Egypt, because the claims come very quick. 
and and everyone seems to want a piece. And then I'll add a final part of this, which I think is very problematic, and that's the use of the word black, which is a is a big issue, I think, and it causes a lot of hurt feelings. And I'll explain what I mean. The word black. In the United States, it has been radically reclaimed. If one used the word black in 1920s America, for instance, it would not be seen as a positive thing, but it has been radically reclaimed by people of color of African ancestry in the United States. And so to be black is something to be proud of. And black is now capitalized in our writing. It's something that is used as a, an identifier of ethnic belonging. And it's also something that you don't need much African heritage to, to count as Black in the United States. So because we have the past enslavement of African peoples, people of African origins in the United States, there's something called, and this is something that a lot of Egyptians aren't aware of, there's something called the one-drop rule, which is the opposite of the way we treat Indigenous people. Both of them are sinful, horrible treatments, but... <laughs> They're both very cleverly created to maintain power over Black bodies or in the Indigenous arena over Indigenous land. But for the Black people in the United States, the one-drop rule means you only need to be a tiny bit African in origin to count as Black. So you can be light-skinned Black, and you can be dark-skinned Black. And so this idea of Black in the United States is so very different from the idea of Black in modern Egypt. Because Black in Egypt, and I'll, I'll rely on Heba to tell us more, but the idea of Black in Egypt, as I understand it, has a much more negative connotation when applied to people. And there's more hurt feelings and how dare you say these things and what's going on. And, and one last thing, I'll say that this conversation has been driven largely by a patriarchal community that wants power over Egypt, that wants to claim Egypt. And it's a, what I would call like a patriarchal pissing contest. And it's so important that this, this discussion is all women because I think it allows us to bring nuance into the discussion. It's not about masculine power because lurking, haunting this entire discussion are claims that modern Egyptians are all of Arab origin and have stolen ancient Egyptian legacy which Amber and I just published a, a substack that speaks against. Obviously, there's, there's evidence that, that doesn't claim that, but, but that's claims that are out there. And then on the other side is a post-colonial white-facing claim that there's this kind of purity, Egyptian purity, and that there's never any mixing, and that we're not quote-unquote sub-Saharan. Sub-Saharan has become probably the most brutal takedown that I've seen in this discussion. And the racism is hot and heavy on both sides, of this patriarchal pissing contest. And I would like to transcend that. And I would like to discuss things in a way that is not about claiming the Egyptians as ours and using it for some either nationalistic or ideological agenda, but instead to look at the reception and wonder and ask why everyone wants a piece of Egypt, which is why I wrote my last book, The Good Kings. Why is everyone claiming Egypt? What is this about? How are we still using this as a legacy of power, of extraordinary power, and, and go from there? So, you know, one cannot have these conversations as, you know, I'm a, I'm a white American. What the hell do I know about modern Egypt? You can't have conversations or claims or opinions about things that you do not know and you do not live. And I don't live this in Egypt. And so we've invited Heba Abdel-Gawad to, to come in and, and bring her perspective. I don't work as a researcher 
primarily on on reception and race. And also, I don't do Greco-Roman Egypt. And so we brought in Catherine Bluen. And so these two experts, I think, will be able to work with me and Jordan and come up with a more nuanced discussion and also to help us understand why everyone is so incredibly angry, because really that's the that's the key feature that you Mm -hmm. see in the press. Like people just lose their shit. They get so upset and they're just they're, they're just spewing hatred and overt racism pictorially and verbally all over the interwebs and it doesn't make anybody look good and there's got to be something that we can that we can say on this because it's so much larger than a stupid Netflix documentary it's not even very good <laughs> there's much more with mm-hmm. this and i want to respect egyptian feelings on this topic and i want to respect black americans feelings on this topic i want to respect to some extent though they don't really deserve it as much white people's feelings on this topic but you know Egypt is like, it's like Helen of Troy. We're just pulling her apart limb from limb. And does it deserve this treatment? Did it have it coming because it has all these golden tombs? I mean, what, what's what's going on? And uh, so let's let's start from, from yeah, there. Yeah, Catherine, back to you. Heba, were your, what were your initial thoughts? Were you, I mean, I don't think any of us were surprised that this became such a controversy. But yeah, what were your initial thoughts on it? And I'll let Heba start. What? I think for me initially was like, I just don't know why we need another documentary on Cleopatra, to be honest. <laughs> yes, thousand thinking. percent. Why, why, why? Why is it absolutely unnecessary? And there are so many far more interesting stories that one can tell and one can bring up about the past. Yes. Any past, not necessarily Egypt, that is not royal, that does not have the romance and that does not, that is not very sexist, as is the story of Cleopatra whenever you're going to talk about it, be it in, from a scholarly perspective, documentary or whatever. It's just this sexist fascination with the ancient queens that usually involves romance, betrayals. Oh, oh. And I have to say the Ptolemaic dynasty has and gives a lot of juice for these mm-hmm. stories. And so Game of Thrones. It's yeah. so Game of Thrones. It's like the Game of Thrones of it. And while Egyptologists don't really find anything that comes after Alexander the Great in Egypt, Interesting, and one prominent Egyptologist has once said, I'm not naming names, like once Alexander the Great stepped in, Egyptology just stepped out, which is true because it's seen as something that is not not Egyptian enough because it's mixed, but that is what Egypt was throughout history, even before the late period, before Alexander the Great. There has been big presence in Egypt far, far earlier, thousands of years before mm-hmm. the politics. Hey, but can I can I say I've I've written elsewhere that Egypt is so special and so sought after that everyone wants a piece of it. So once empires step in, you you have the Assyrians, then you have the Babylonians, then you have the Persians, then you have the Macedonians, then you have the Romans. And then, of course, you'll have the Arabs and then you'll have the British and the French. And it's it doesn't stop still today. Everyone still wants a piece of Egypt. This is a very old story of claims and occupations that that we have to situate ourselves in so that we can understand yeah. that one little documentary can make heads explode for a reason, for a yeah, reason. Of course, of course. But I have to say, like, Egypt has been diverse, not only from an empirical perspective, I think from all the tourism, the trade, that there has been far more mixing between cultures than we've got today, given the borders, the visa restrictions. The world was far more mobile. 
than the way we see today, despite the lack of technology in the sense of transportation, but still there, there was the ability to travel from one place to the other. It was difficult, yes, but it was easy to cross a border, more or less. And, and I think for me that that is always the issue. Why do we need another documentary about Cleopatra? It's absolutely, I don't know. I've seen the documentary. I've equally seen the, the Egyptian documentary and they don't add anything to the debate. There is nothing to be added to the Cleopatra narrative. We deserve better. Ancient Egypt deserves better. The audiences, even the public who are interested in ancient history, be it in Egypt or elsewhere around the world, deserves better than, it's just the narrative is so, as, as, as Kara said, it's just so patriarchal and it's just unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, one thing, and then Catherine, you can jump in. I want to say that absolutely ignored are medieval Arabic perspectives on Cleopatra, which are wholly different from the Roman misogynist perceptions that situate her as this witch and this sorceress. They take some of the same ideas that she's skilled in medicine, skilled in healing, skilled in beauty secrets. The Romans turn it into this self-involved drama queen bitch. Whereas if you look at the Arabic sources, she's like an imhotep of, of the Greco-Roman world who has power over all kinds of magical, medical lore. And so, you know, to choose to say, to tell the Cleopatra story again, in my opinion, is a choice for misogyny, not necessarily a turning towards a feminist lens, no matter who produced it. I, I don't see that in this documentary. I know most of the talking heads were female, but so much of what was said was not in Cleopatra's best interest, if, if we're trying to resuscitate her, if that was the point of the documentary, yeah. which I don't think it was. No, it's not. And also just one final point. I think that there, there needs to be a move to the more ordinary bits of history, the ordinary people who were, beyond, who were behind all of this culture, be the ordinary ancient Egyptians or the ordinary Egyptian, just look beyond the very tiny boxes of the royal pharaohs and just, yeah, it just, I hate it. I'm sorry. Not just the Cleopatra documentary, but this fascination with the royal kings and queens of Egypt is just, it, it makes the rest of the Egyptians invisible. And it's, it's social injustice, even from, for the past, like we are, we're being discriminatory against even ancient Egyptians, the ordinary ancient Egyptians, not only the modern Egyptians too. Yeah, I agree completely. And to follow up this Netflix, to this Netflix documentary being a follow up with the previous famous, well-done Netflix documentary about the Old Kingdom tomb and all of the, what, what was it a New Kingdom tomb? What was the Jordan Saqqara? Yeah, there was a Saqqara documentary about, and all of the people who were working in the tomb and all of the people who were buried in the tomb. And it was a very thoughtful, quiet, careful documentary. Oh, it was the, the secrets of the Saqqara tomb. It was them following an archaeology dig. And reconstructing all mm -hmm. of the things that were found in there. And it did so well. And it, you know, I would like to see more of that. Not that elites aren't, you know, these are still the the elites of their day, obviously. It's still about hegemony is, is everywhere because the people who are able to produce are those who are wealthy and can leave something lasting. But there are other ways of, of talking about people in Egypt. But Catherine, what, what do you think? Yeah, I'm trying to, it feels like ages ago that the trailer came out, right? Because mm -hmm. let's remember that the the bulk of the storm was following a trailer. Like no one had seen the four-hour documentary yet. And it went on and on. I had kind of, I guess my first feeling was a feeling of exhaustion. And I felt as an ancient historian, a bit depressed in the sense that 
I think an increasing number of us are trying to set some records straight with regards to kind of sifting what modern concerns have been retrojected into the past from what the information and voices we had from these ancient spaces and peoples, what they were about, what stories do we have actually have once we take ourselves out of them as much as we can in a self-critical way. And with the story of Cleopatra, it seems like no matter who claims her body, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about the, the crux of the matter in this case is the skin color of a woman who died 2000 years ago, which in antiquity, some people have a hard time understanding that, but in antiquity, in that context, the skin color was not a central marker of status and identity. So at the end of the day, you know, we, ha we had, there was another Cleopatra movie project, I think in 2020 with, with the Israeli Gal Gadot as casted as the, the lead actress. And at the time I co-wrote a post on the topic for the Society of Classical Studies blog. So it's a two-part post with Rebecca Futo Kennedy. It will be in the second part, I believe, at this podcast on the topic and with Usama Ali Gad. And at the time, there was a little storm as well. We, but the storm had to do with the fact that Gal Gadot is known to have openly supported IDF and the, some activities related to the occupation, the illegal occupation of Palestinian land. And so we published a piece on the reception and we were bracing ourselves for a backlash. And inter interestingly enough, the backlash did not come. What was interesting in that particular case was that I believe that, you know, there was a general consensus that there was something problematic with that casting on the part of Greeks and the parts of Egyptians. And, and now, so when this new project came about and when we saw the trailer, I felt a sense of exhaustion to see that once again, the, the body of this woman is claimed to further some interest. And what is very sad is that, you know, in this particular case, I, my understanding is that there's a lot of trauma behind and, and kind of reclaiming of narrative that are totally legitimate. So it stems from a place of suffering and it stems from kind of a a journey of healing, but, but then the way it's done once again, does not necessarily take into account the reality of antiquity, even though to be fair in the series itself, at some point, Shelley Haley mentions that, you know, the skin color was not central in antiquity, but anyway, so when the trailer came out, I felt a bit discouraged. I felt, okay, here we go again. And then it just turned out that the let's say the outpour of aggressivity and resistance and opposition on each side was really, really strong and more violent than in the case of the Gal Gadot documentary. Yeah. So let, let's see what will be the next Cleopatra project as I suspect it's not going to be the last one, sadly. Yeah, we have students who ask us all the time, like everyone is so interested in what race were the ancient Egyptians? What did they look like? What skin color did they have? All these things. And and as much as you can say exactly what you said, like these weren't categories, we're projecting into the past, et cetera, et cetera. It seems people don't want to hear that. Like they don't care, which is very interesting, right? That we're no matter how many times scholars 
say that. That's not the answer they want to hear. They still want to know. So true, Jordan. And they it's don't, so they don't, true. They don't. They don't. I mean, not everyone, but my experience. Now I just, you know, I wrote another post after. I, I first I thought, oh no, here we go again. I'm. I'm not writing anything. And then after a while, I thought, okay, let me just write something with Rebecca Fidel Kennedy. And we received, it circulated a lot. We were surprised at that. And then we received quite a bit of hostile kind of reactions to it from both Egyptian people and African and Western African and Af Afro-descendant people. And we would read the comments and the comments don't make any sense with what we wrote. So I repeatedly asked, you know, in response to a shift, these comments, did you read the article? This is exactly what I'm going through right now with what we just wrote on Substack. And I just I mean, wrote on Twitter, but you didn't read the article. And she said, no, I didn't. And so really, we, we put a bibliography, we put open access articles that are of good quality. We put a, a link to a, a textbook with all the primary evidence on Cleopatra, because this is something that I was very disappointed with this documentary. The, the nature of the primary evidence we have and the limitations and the biases are not forefronted. And to me, this is the crux of the matter. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we've tried and we're not the only ones. You, you, you two are trying to, to, to put this knowledge out there and make it accessible to people who don't have access to university libraries. We put YouTube videos. And then we, re we received these violent comments from people who who did not read what we said. It doesn't make any sense. So but I mean, I think that's the, the important thing that like people pretend to want to use these facts or the actual, you know, data that we have, but it doesn't actually matter. Yeah. They're going to make their assumptions and disregard the things that they don't want to believe and vice yeah. versa. And so then how do we... Well, what it teaches me is what that do we do with the it? end yes. of the day, part of this is not about sex. There's something really, and I'm really saying that with respect. Like, I don't want to be accused of being condescending. I'm not trying to be condescending. I mean, I think there is something that transcends actual historical evidence here. There's a real deep emotional investment in some stories. And so what does it mean when you are invested in a certain narrative and that in a way or another, it's part of your identity. What does it mean if this narrative is disrupted or crumbles down, right? It's highly unsettling. And I mean, it happens to me as well in many ways in my life. So I can, what these reactions have been teaching me is that, wow, you know, often we're being told you're doing the humanities, you're a his, an ancient historian, like what's the point of having professors who teach these things? And I'm looking at this whole, I call it the saga, for lack of a better word. And I think, well, it's, it's very much at the center of, of our present world. And we are people, very relevant. Yeah. And it's not just a rational thing. It's about bodies. It's about feelings. It's about identity. It's about belonging. So to me, I, I, I've been observing and trying to, to, to learn from all these reactions that are coming from left, right, and center. And it's, it's ongoing. Just reading in the news yesterday about how Turkey is now undergoing an anti-immigrant movement of their own against Syrian migrants in response to fallout from the war, Europe not taking the migrants, and, and 
Turkey stepping forward and saying yes. And I, I heard an interview, a woman was saying, you know, Turkish isn't even spoken on the streets anymore. All I hear is Arabic. So mixing of peoples, mixing of identities, mixing of languages, it causes stress. It causes fear, causes a kind of panic. And you would think, okay, you know, if I go to Egypt today, I'm going to hear Arabic. I'm going to hear a lot of English, a lot of English. But what does it mean to have been through that kind of traumatic experience over thousands of years? And then where do you come out on the other side? Where's your identity fall? And what lines do you draw? And how, how do you find your place in the world? But how do you deal with this emotionally? And I'd like to throw it to Heba. To, I mean, what, what do Egyptians think and feel about this topic? I, and I know there's not one answer because an Egyptian in Cairo might have a very different response from an Egyptian in Luxor or Aswan or Alexandria, right? So what what's the perspective? And is there infighting within Egypt? And then how does, does one unify then when dealing with the occupation, intellectual occupation of Egypt through media from the outside? I think one issue here is that the for me, this is the after effect of colonialism. This is, this is the way I can only see it. From both sides, this is what happens with the racism that came with the colonialism, be it the colonialism in Egypt, be it the colonialism back in America, the racism. It's, it's just an after effect. And I have to say for me, and I, I was just telling Karim the other day that I chose to step aside and not to take part in the conversation because I could genuinely understand both parts and I could genuinely empathize with both. I, I totally understand if you've been for so long, totally and absolutely sidelined from your own history and everyone seems to claim a piece of it or claim it and appropriate it as theirs while totally sidelining you from the story. So it's, it is understandable that this is what it came to. And I think, I don't think it, it is the question of color here that is at play or at least for me or from Reading the subtext in few of the Egyptian reactions to what is happening here, it's not a matter of color as much as it's a matter here they go again, someone else is claiming our heritage as, as being theirs while we are sidelined. And in all honesty, this is a valid argument because it's true. It is a reality and this is equally the issue with how the current wave of Afrocentricism and, and the impact of how it's claiming Egypt as theirs while totally taking us out of the conversation and naming us as Arabized settlers. Because this is, for example, how many of the sadly fellow Black African Egyptologists would call me openly on Twitter. It's just because the narrative here is maybe that they are uneducated. No, they are quite highly educated with PhDs. And, and for them, this is what it came to. I am still for them seen as an Arab settler. And the question of indigenous that came at the very beginning, for many, even when I was part of an African-European course, I was called by an African colleague how I'm too white to be an African. And this is the after effect of colonialism because... We've inherited this color code that the West have created because it's very easy to label people and place them in categories rather than try to have some empathy and see the world through their eyes. It's far easier to just put people into boxes of race and here we go, this, is, this would help us to deal with them. This is the way that we can divide to conquer or whatever. But we've inherited this system and 
one way or the other, all of us are simply stuck. And I think part of the stuckness that we've got is due to the lack of recognition. The, yes, there has been few of decolonial movements, yes, but no one does openly recognize the amount of atrocities that happened, be it in Egypt during the colonial times. It's only seen as removing objects, taking objects out of Egypt, and that was it. It was a peaceful endeavor. But even during colonial times, there has been genocides on the Egyptian side. Why are some genocides more public while others are totally sidelined, totally dismissed? This is something else that we need to reflect on because I think the narratives that we're seeing today are very similar to the narratives that we would read in the 19th century archives of Petri or the others. That's, we are not, we are still not seen as the descendants of the Pharaoh or of the ancient Egyptian. And we are still seen as just the locals, those who happen to occupy the land that was once for this ancient culture that is perceived as human history. But once we try to claim it, it, be, it stops being human history. It becomes their history, but not ours. And I think the only way forward here is a structural change that comes with real recognition and real allowance for an open, honest, transparent dialogue of what, what has happened then and the impact to which it has today, but equally the extent to which there is a continuity in colonialism in the way that we portray Egypt and in the way that we portray certain cultures. And there is so much colonialism in the Afrocentricism as well. I remember a few months ago, it was last year, there was another conference that was meant to take part in Egypt, in Aswan, that again was led by an Afrocentric movement and the conference was banned. Understandably, this has led to some Western backlash to how their Egyptian government stop a conference, etc. But I could equally empathize. I could see, I could see why they are doing this, why they banned the conference, because it's turning into this who sets his hand on Egypt first competition. But equally, we have not we necessarily as all of the Egyptians, but some of the Egyptians and particularly those in power, be it the state of the Ministry of Antiquities or be it some of the Egyptian intellectuals, we have equally internalized colonialism. So we prefer to be more affiliated to the, the progressive West than being seen as descendants of the African continent. This is equally an issue that we've got today. And I have to say the statements, the official statements coming from Egypt are extremely problematic and totally unfactual and totally unscientific. And it shouldn't be coming from renowned scientific or authoritative powers that does have authority over the narrative, at least within Egypt. When I see those statements in particular, it makes me realize that cultural memory of history that's even thousands of years old can come alive like, like that. And what yes, I mean, yeah, yeah. What, yeah, what I mean is that, that an ancient hegemonic occupation of Nubia by Egypt yeah. is still very much felt, even though this is of thousands course. of years old. And so then of, you have that aspect, an internal course. African competition of, of who won thousands of years ago. And the pain is palpable. The pain is all still very much there. The amount of debates that I tend to have, for example, with my friends or my family members, just to get them to reflect on how we were colonizers as well, us as Egyptians, be it in the case of Sudan or in the case of Nubia from ancient times up to modern times until the separation between Egypt and the Sudan. 
we've got our own colonial history too. But there is equally the selectivity of who you would define as colonial, as, as being a colonizer. And I think it is something that when it comes to Cleopatra is so much vivid that even us within the classics discipline or in Egyptology, rarely do we fare to the Ptolemies as colonizers. Although in reality, when we put all the facts together, this is what happened. But because of how the Egyptians have responded to this type of authority being there or to the Greek presence for thousands of years, one way or the other, they were still at least how the dynasty started foreigners ruling over Egyptians. This is initially how this all started. So we need to, I think, deconstruct all of these narratives and reconstruct them from a way that is more empathetic to ourselves and to the others as well, be it us in modern times or, or in the past. I totally understand why the Afrocentricism movement is huge within the United States. I totally understand why this is a thing and I totally empathize and understand why for many Black African Americans, ancient Egypt is something that can help them fight back against the racism that they are suffering with. But on the other hand, I totally empathize with the Egyptians who tend to feel that every now and then they are being sidelined once and once again. And the question that we need to ask, for example, if we had an Egyptian actress, and there are many Egyptian actresses who've been on an international profile. And although I do extremely hate bringing color into the debate, but there are some Nubian Egyptian actors who, and I've even asked a few friends before, before the podcast, just to try to bring up another argument in, who could have been perfect candidates for the documentary. But I think even then there would have been an Afrocentric backlash because it's, we are not seen as Africans either. And this is an issue and something that even for us, nearly in the 1960s, when Gamal Hamdan, an intellectual geopolitician, was trying to help us get out of this dilemma of who we are and how we should see ourselves and how others should see us, he came up with a concept that I think is extremely useful, that Egypt is the possessor of the middle ground. We just happen to be fixed in the middle with a variety of cultures, with a variety of geographies, with a variety of continents. And there has been waves of not only colonialism, but equally immigration going up and down all over Egypt. So Egypt is the possessor of the middle ground. It's Arab, it's Coptic, it's Egyptian, it's Nubian, it's African, it's Asian, it's Mediterranean. It's many things that makes it whole. So when I call myself that when I want to tick a box of the many ethnicity forums I have to do in the UK or elsewhere around the world, I wish there was a box that just says Egyptian. Not because I'm anti-African, but because being Egyptian is being African, is equally being Middle Eastern, is equally being many things. But as I said, we just want to have a single story, a single label, because a single label or a single story is very easy to unpack, is very easy to deconstruct. But once things become complicated and too, too detangled, it becomes messy. But this is what history is, and messy histories are the histories. This is equally what Egypt is. Egypt, be it in the past and, or even in modern times, even today, it's quite messy. Even within this debate, we've got internal division among the Egyptians. Not all the Egyptians take the sides of those who are anti the documentary. And I think it was quite productive that even within Egypt, this brought a discussion on Egyptian racism, on modern Egyptian racism as well. 
how, for example, we are, some Egyptians, not the majority, are responding to the current Sudanese conflict. How do we feel with the wave of, the, there might be the wave of Sudanese immigrants coming in, and the, and but equally the economic struggles that we're suffering from, which is the same case in Turkey, which also plays in the way that people feel threatened. And I still equally empathize. One should not think in this way, and everyone should be welcomed everywhere, but it's equally important for us to see the world through the eyes of others who might feel threatened economically, emotionally, who might feel that they are getting stripped of their identity if this is the only thing that they can hold to. And I think it's not just the work of academics, but it's equally the work of governments in, in, because this is from where the injustice and the inequality, this is the heart of it. It's governance. It's the, the, the imbalance of the economy and the imbalance of the socio-cultures between different classes within Egypt or within Turkey or elsewhere that makes, or even in America, given why the Black African movement chooses to centralize its narrative around Egypt, it's totally understandable and totally valid. But a documentary wouldn't solve it, us writing a book wouldn't solve it. I think it only can come with an economical, socio-cultural change because in reality, governance is at the heart of all of these problems, regardless of many books we can write. Unless those situations are resolved, we are stuck into the same narrative. And I have to admit, sometimes I don't feel I can really blame people for having, for having the ideas they've had if you're coming from a very humble, underrepresented background. And I can't really blame you. I can't really blame you if you feel threatened that someone is taking over your identity or your, your, or in your mind, your opportunity in life. So, so much of this is larger geopolitical. We haven't even discussed the, the dams going, that have been built in Sudan and Ethiopia and water control, right? And Egypt has had that just geographically gotten the, the wealth of the water for millennia. And now that might be threatened. And so there is an internal African competition that wasn't there before. There it is... comes from Egyptian colonial history in Africa as well, because yeah. these water. But you see, these are arguments that it's very difficult to bring in Egypt because they've never been brought before. We've only dealt with the one single story, the state narrative of what history isn't about. We just have one actor who tends the history. And it's very, very difficult to go against that. It's very difficult to say that the water agreements that we've had throughout years are very unjust to the rest of the African nations. It's impossible to, to bring this out into the public. But it's equally understandable why it, is un, why it is impossible, because if you've lived all your life thinking, you'll be shaking people's realities. People, it's, and, and it is difficult because you, you feel like you're losing yourself in the process. And it's so much to lose. How extraordinarily human to try to stuff all of these geopolitical historical narratives into one woman's life, into one woman's body, into one woman's identity. And then we fight over her because we're too afraid or it's too complicated. We can't talk about all of the things that are surrounding it. It's too much. We can't face it. And so we just focus on this one woman from a couple thousand years ago and and make that the it's kind of like you grow up in a dysfunctional family and everyone argues about what, how the coffee ground should be thrown out instead of arguing about why my mother yeah, treats why? me in a particular way I, and i think we bring this up a lot Kara ended her good king's book with this idea of sustainability but this idea that there's only a certain amount of 
power. And if you have some, that means someone else has less instead of an idea that we all can share in a, a pot. And so this idea of if one group owns Cleopatra, that means someone else can't. Instead of being we all can partake in, in ancient Egypt in a certain way in a more collaborative effort. It's a patriarchal way of thinking. Yeah. If I get it, you don't get it. And mm-hmm. if we are, as I like to believe, on the beginning an anti-patriarchal revolution among humankind, then we're we are starting to think about things in a way that we have not before. But if we are anarchal or people are starting to think anti-patriarchally, that means that the patriarchy will rise up in whatever form and shape it is much more fiercer than it had before. What do they say? The bombing is always fiercest right before the armistice is signed. So th- this is this is a really fierce time and the patriarchal voices are making themselves loudly heard, but that doesn't mean that that's what this is really about. So we, we have to then go behind it. I, I have three points that I want to make that are more nerdy points to a certain extent, but I think they pertain to what you've been talking about and what Heba has shared. So I'll go back to the sort of what Heba said, talking about Egyptians being tagged as being Arab settlers, right? Whether from within or from the outside. So I work on the Roman period, right? That's the core of my specialty. And I've worked also on the early Arab period to a point. And so what we know about the, let's say, century or two following the Arab conquest is that, yes, there were some Arab settlements. But compared to the population who was already there, it's really minimal. So we're not talking of, you know, white settler colonial Canada or United States here. It's pretty minimal. It's Um, in historical terms. It just adds on a layer, right? We call it it elite replacement, right? So the population stays the same, but you might replace some of the elites. And some of those elites will be Arab. There were some veteran settlements, but they were put. From what we see in the papyri, they were put in areas that were where the land was not that great because no one was where the land was not that great. Yeah. But so you don't replace all of Egypt no. with all Arabs. It's not, no. there's not enough of them. <laughs> no. So I just want to say this is a period that's not very popular, right? Because it's a liminal period. But this is what we know. And I am a bit tired of this narrative that the Arabs took over. No, absolutely not. So I'm not going to expand on that, but I could. The other thing I wanted to say was regarding this whitening of Egypt that, that Heba was mentioning. So in a nutshell, what seems to have happened in the modern period is that Egypt was appropriated by European powers, right? Imperial powers in two main ways. The first way was already in antiquity, the Greeks would coin the Egyptians as like the originator of their greatness, right? So the, the Egyptians invented so many things, they knew so many things, the Greek went, they were impressed, they took it on, and then they bonified it. So what you see in modern European writings from even before Napoleon on is, is this kind of appropriation of Egypt as the ultimate route to Western civilization, right? Which, which was then appropriated and bonified by the Greeks and the Romans. The second way is Christianity. Egypt is part of the Holy Land, right? So many biblical episodes took place there and there is still a big like pilgrimage tourist industry in Egypt today. This is why Petrie so, was digging there to prove yeah, that right. Yeah. The, first, the first papyrus in the papyri from Oxyrhynchus who are now in the UK that were published. So this is a, a big 
series of Greek papyri. The first one out of tens of thousands was a biblical fragment. So that says something, right? So through these two appropriations, there's kind of what we could call a certain whitening of Egypt and a de-Africanization of it. And this is what has been internalized globally. And, and what I've been thinking about, looking at the, the backlash to the trailer and even at the documentary, I've been thinking about kind of how through narratives that are about belonging and asserting blackness or Egyptianness or greatness, there always seems to be somehow a certain claim to being white adjacent. And I'm aware that this might make some people really angry at me for saying that, but this is a question I am posing, right? The Egyptian, let's say one of the Egyptian reactions, which is about she was not black, is also in a way coming across as saying we are not black. And for the Greeks, it's the same thing. Let's just remember that in the early 20th century, the Greeks were not considered white people. Same with the Italians. This is recent. And just look at how they've been treated during the, the financial crisis in 2008. They were treated as subaltern, non-real Europeans, right? Yeah, yeah. So there is this claim as well. And then what made me think about, is there something of that in the documentary as well was the land, the way the land was represented. I was struck, first of all, obviously, this was not shot in Egypt. I don't think they would have been allowed to. They're usually shot in Morocco, these things, but I, I'm not Morocco sure about this Tunisia, one. Tunisia, right? Mm. So, so it was not even shot in Egypt, which for me is painful to see. Then most of what you see is either looks like a colored plate from the description de l'Egypte, Right. They, they live in some temples. It's all white. It's 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 I mean, no offense, but it's really bad done. The, the, the reconstruction. There's yeah. no greenery. Where's the Nile? I don't understand. Where's the sea? Like whoever has been in Alexandria and Egypt, the sea is, is so present. And the fact that it was not even shot in Egypt to me is painful. And it made me think about the front page of the description of the ship made by you know, following Napoleon's conquest. And this is a, a plate I'm teaching a lot in my courses. And what is striking about this plate is that you have a condensed landscape of Egypt where the Nile is really small. When you say a plate, yeah. for those yeah. people who don't oh, know yeah. academic volumes, it's, yeah. a, it's a big picture that's separate from the text because publishing yeah. back in the day, you couldn't put pictures and text easily together. So it's, it's just this big picture and it fronts the whole description de l'Egypte and the description de l'Egypte was created by the scholars that Napoleon sent over in the late 18th century. And they collected flora and fauna and antiquities. And they published it with this giant multi-volume thing called the description de l'Egypte. You can buy a little condensed, you can buy condensed yeah. versions of the antiquities at least, maybe the others in a Tushan format. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, go to Amazon, look for that. But but Google this description de l'Egypte and you will find exactly what we're talking about. And you'll be like, oh my God, there's this whole volume. This is what starts the the whitening, the claiming, the European yeah. claiming. It's like Egypt. this idea of encapsulating all of Egypt, all that's yeah. living, non-living landscape in, in the volume, right? Technologizing it, fetishizing it, objectifying yes. it, dehumanizing yes. it. Yes. Exactly. And the front page, which is a bit like the cover, which is not the cover, but the front thing you see is this landscape essentially with rooms, a few palm trees, but that's it. 
there's nothing modern. There is no living being on that, mm. on that page. And looking at the documentary, it made me think of that. It's only desert. She just walks in desert. There's no greenery. The Egyptians don't look like what we know ancient Egyptians look like. There's no, there's no water. There's no animals. To, to me, I thought to myself, okay, what is this telling us? The way the land is represented. And I also believe that there's a strong link between the way you re represent the land and the way you represent women. And I had the same problem with the Assassin's, you remember the Assassin's Creed video yes. game? And yeah. they've got all these European plants and the wrong flora and fauna, and it just doesn't feel right. It's like some European meadowland, and it just it made my head explode. It's it, other people are like, so who cares? They got the wrong plants. I'm like, it's everything. It's your geographic setting. It's the way it should be done. And don't get me started on Assassin's Creed's misogyny and patriarchal yeah. voice, but that's there too. It's, this is everywhere in the media. It's everywhere. I think too. To, to both of those points, like the laziness, if you didn't even bother to do a modicum of background research into these things to get a very basic setting correct, or, but then you're uh, couching this idea within, oh, it's historically accurate. And that's what people should be caring about is this accuracy. But yet you have very, like watching the docuseries, there's like stirrups and all these other highly inaccurate things. She's like sword fighting at one point too. And so much um, Eurocentric privilege in yeah. all of these things. It just, so much Game of Thrones imposed Eurocentric yeah. privilege drives me crazy. It seems like the hegemonic American gaze. Yeah. Yes, 100%. Even though this is a, an Afro-American production, I don't know whether they would say they have an Afrocentrist like point of view or not. And even though I should say the expert to talk like, a lot of the stuff that is said is, is valid. So yeah. I want to discredit the expertise. But, but there is something also that is very American hegemonic. And it speaks to the fact that the United States are, you know, it's an empire. Mm -hmm. And the United States, let's remind the listeners, they have a military base in Egypt. They do. So the British left, but now the Americans are there. Mm -hmm. So that poses yeah. all sorts of questions in terms of, Egyptian response to these hegemonic narratives about them as well. I was just going to bring into what Catherine has said. Yes, there, there, there are different types of American intervention, not just the, the military base, but there is equally the aid and other things at play that makes the, the feelings of the modern Egyptians of self-defeat quite profound. And the way you feel belittled and the more you get those extractive, reclaiming, exploitive narratives around you or what you perceive as your heritage. And one thing that I wanted to bring, though, is that I think from the responses I've seen from the modern Egyptians, the conception of the ownership of heritage is not, is not as the capitalist way that this is seen from a Eurocentric perspective or how this is appropriated from a Eurocentric perspective. I think it's more of an emotional ownership. This is and equally, their sense of identity, their sense of belonging. This is, this is where we belong. This is who we are. This made me reflect on the concept of indigenous and how, regardless of which is an important historical fact, how many Arab settlers were there. And, but it's equally the way we have the right to self-identify. If I'm not Egyptian, I don't know who else I would be. I'm, I know no other land. I know, I know no other home. And that's my lived experience. So regardless, even if it was taken over by the Arabs, it still makes, it doesn't make me less Egyptian. And this is the narrative that 
I wish that more and more it comes more from an academic setting in how that communities do have the right to see the world the way they want and they have the right to self-identify. Communities make claims that cannot be proved with evidence, cannot be proved with scientific evidence, but that shouldn't take away from how they feel about themselves or how they connect to their own geography and to the environment around them. This is why I felt that I just want to step aside. Also because I feel sometimes it's really problematic that as the Ministry of State or as the world tend to see us through certain figures, we are, we are still seen as a homogenous group. And if someone becomes a public figure, they become the face and voice of Egypt. And it, it is extremely problematic because we're very varied, we're quite diverse, just as any other culture or community. I'm not saying we're just special in this way, but we're special in the sense of how the censorship, not many voices could be vocal and for a variety of sociopolitical reasons that is usually not taken into consideration. So we are seen through certain voices and even the voices on the internet, even the backlash on social media, this is minimal compared to the hundreds of millions who live in Egypt who perhaps within the current economy don't really care. <laughs> don't, don't, don't really care about another Cleopatra story in, initially. But if I have to say, if you go to them and have this discussion with them, I think they would equally have the very same reaction in the sense, why not an Egyptian actor and why someone in the West have to tell the story about Egypt, again, regardless of the color, especially that regardless of what I personally think of certain aspects of the secrets of Saqqara when it comes to human remains and how this has been dealt with on, on, on the documentary itself. But we've got talent equally. We've got the ability and the resources to produce our own documentaries too. And I think this is a call for Egypt, that this is the only productive way, like, Public statements, especially that they are unfactual, twisting facts just to prove a state narrative that is scientifically incorrect and is based on, it made us look like a joke. And I was really embarrassed when I read the statement. It's quite embarrassing for us. The way forward is having documentaries or having more public facing history storytelling that is not centered on a state narrative, that is not centered on royal figures, but that is equally more or less independent from an official narrative, which can seem impossible with current, in current day and age, but I don't think it's for the future, perhaps. Maybe, maybe there is hope in the future. And maybe just like how Moon Knight, there was an Egyptian director and there was so many Egyptian references. It was the first time for me ever to watch Moon Knight and feel, yeah, I can relate to this. And it was because of the modern Egyptian songs and the modern Egyptian music that was used and they were extremely relevant to the actual story that I could tell where are the references coming from. And this was an Egyptian director. It was totally an Egyptian art director for all the clothing, all the scenes, and it was extremely well done. So the talent is well, there. There was, a, there was an Egyptian actress who's also an Egyptologist, Exactly, no? yes. Who's, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's Rosaline, yes. Rosaline, yes. she's equally an Egyptologist too. And, and she, 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 she tends to get in touch when we were doing the Egypt's Dispersed Heritage Project in how that for her, she felt that this is, yes, it's about time to decolonize the narrative. She's there and she could have done a Cleopatra. I'm not sure you would have still not get a backlash. You would have get a backlash with Cleopatra regardless of, of who presents the movie, I have to say. But maybe 
Maybe this is why we shouldn't have any more Cleopatra documentaries because equally on the other hand, from a feminist perspective, the way it's, she is presented in such a positive light is equally problematic for our feminist cause too. So I don't know, like we, we should have more provocative story, less elite women and more ordinary people, women, men, ordinary voices, people who make mistakes, just like every one of us, people who struggle, just, just like all of us, and less of the royal figures and just trying to find excuses to present them in a positive light, although they, they, they were just human beings at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, we all know us as historians here. What it's so you, hard, Heba. It's so hard yes. because so much of what we have preserved is for That's the royalty only. That's what I was just going to say. That's all we have. But, but not for but, the Hellenistic and Roman period. We have exactly. We've got we so have stories. We have society. All the stories, all yes, the contracts man. that is there. But equally, we need to reflect, which is which is what Kara does in her in her books. I think that what we get is what they wanted us to think. Is also it's also. A twisted narrative too. It doesn't mean that that is the reality. This is this is what the public need to know. Whatever comes down to us from that time is what it's how they wanted to portray themselves. It doesn't necessarily make it. There is no absolute truth, be it in the past or in the present or in the future. This doesn't exist. And the way we're just everyone is seeking the absolute truth is just tiring. You'll never find it because it just it's a myth. It doesn't exist. Hey, but it would help me to understand a little more about what I've heard about a Ramadan miniseries about Ahmoza that yes. was yeah, supposed yeah, 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 to yeah, yeah. appear. Yeah, this is a few yeah. years ago, I think. Yes, and, that was two and from years what ago. I, it's good that you brought this because I... So from what I read, the, the actor had blue eyes and lighter skin. Exactly. And Egyptians freaked exactly. out. Exactly. And then they and, canceled and the, the whole the thing. Can you tell us? Totally yeah. banned. Yes, and it costed millions of pounds. It was Ahmoza and it was... An actor who looks more, he's blonde with blue eyes. He's, he doesn't look upper Egyptian. He doesn't look upper, he doesn't look like me even, and I'm not even, <laughs> and I'm just from Cairo. <laughs> so he doesn't look like mainstream Egyptians. He doesn't look like the, the majority of the Egyptians. And from the color of his eye and, and the skin tone, but not just that, like, hang on, even the accuracy of what he was wearing and the dress. And I loved it because it was the first time that the Egyptians, the, the, and it was the public who were against this program. And it is the public who brought this forward. And this is why I'm saying that people should look at us into the majority, into the multiplicity, the multivocality, because it is the public who brought this to, to the state eye and it got banned by the state later on. It's them who reflected on even the historical inaccuracy of the outfit that he was wearing and some of the facts that and that was equally just from the trailer. It, we haven't seen the series. It didn't came through. So a hundred million pounds, hundreds of millions of pounds were when tossed totally away went, all of the production yeah. because the population of Egypt was so upset about a trailer. Yes, there was. If, if that doesn't that. prove how emotionally hot these things are, nothing exactly. will. And this is what I mean about the emotional ownership. What we Because I don't want the world to see us as like narcissists who want to claim Egypt just as our own. No, we are happy to share it with the rest of the world. If the world recognizes the emotional ownership and the indigenous ownership that we believe we have of it, so it's not this capitalist ownership. And even the backlash that was against Cleopatra, I think most of it is coming from a very emotional feeling of defeat, of how here we go again, another another 
side is claiming Egypt as theirs, why not ours? And I think the Ahmadi series is such a good example of how even Egyptians, the, the, the majority of the Egyptians are against the, 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 the whitewashing of ancient Egyptian history because this is, this is what happened. And I have to say, when I saw the documentary, I got upset for a variety of reasons because there is no need for a documentary to have this like reacting because you would always get into the debate of color, whether you like it or not. This is what it ends up to. And it just reminds, reminded me of the Renaissance paintings of Egypt that were so incorrect. And it's usually the kings who were white and the rest of the Egyptians were of a darker color that comes yeah. from the racism that came at the 19th, 18th century. And you're um, referring here to the ideas like Emory's dynastic race, exactly, that there was a, exactly. that the dynasts, the kings had a different racial origin exactly. than the people and of Egypt. Yeah. Of course, and Petrie and the eugenics and the smuggling of Egyptian, ancient Egyptian human skulls to the eugenics center here at UCL just to prove that the Egyptians were Caucasian and not African. We should, we should really refrain from any reflection on the past that does include actual actors. This is, we should really refrain from any of this because it's public, it's extremely problematic. I completely and agree. And when I did produce, it can never get tried. It can I produced ne- a documentary, no, I produced a documentary once called Out of Egypt and I made sure that there were no recrees as I called them. Of course. And instead we took, we took objects and papyri and we made of them course, live. We made them move. Exactly. And that exactly. was the best way. Yeah. Because we've got the ancient evidence. You really, we've got Cleopatra on the walls. You really don't need an actress presenting. We don't need Elizabeth Taylor. That's, that's a movie. That's a fantasy. But when you want to call it a documentary, you shouldn't have people reenacting the past on, with, even if Egyptians, because even us in Egypt, we're diverse. And I do hate to bring it to the color coding system because it's, it's just wrong. But no single Egyptian face can represent all of the Egyptians. So even if you got an Egyptian actor, that would still be wrong. That you would still be sidelining other Egyptians who wouldn't, which was exam- exactly the case of the Ahmos, which is what it was because he didn't look like the majority of the Egyptians, the multivocality of Egypt. It's a very, very small group that tends to have such facial features, let's say. So, so again, I don't think this is necessary. And I think Netflix was absolutely wrong from this perspective, not because of the actress was black, but because of how you cannot reenact the past with accuracy and call it a documentary. This can never happen. Can you give us a, an idea of the different perspectives within Egypt? Like where do, and I know there are many groups, but where do people break down? How does this, how does this work? Uh, so, so for example, like there is the... <laughs> So even now we have our own, what we call them the Kemets in Egypt, which these are the right, the Egyptian right wing who want to only claim that Egypt is thing, has a single layer and this single layer is ancient Egyptian. And they are denying, they don't want to affiliate with Africa. They don't want to affiliate with the Middle East. They don't want to affiliate with the Arabs or to go into a religious affiliation, Coptic or Muslim. They are only descendants of the ancient Egyptians and they refuse the many other layers. I think this equally comes from, again, because when you go, th- when you read the subtext, because I try to have empathy as much as I can with whoever is posting anything online or with, with any Egyptian view, because that's, I think, I feel that's the only balanced way that you can read it, is that you could read that it also comes from a position of how they feel sidelined and the economical decline that 
ancient Egypt is the glory that we can rely on because now we're losing our position in the Middle East. We're losing our economical and sociopolitical position in North Africa and in the rest of the Arab world as if this Arab world or Islamic world exists because I never know how, what it is or how to define it. But because we feel that we're losing this position, the only thing that would bring us back into the center or for them that brings us to the center and they might be right about that from an emotional perspective, is ancient Egypt. That's the glory that they can rely to. So this is one group. The other group is the, the middle ground who do not affiliate with the right wing and they do not affiliate with the very uh, left wing. They acknowledge all the layers. They are, they are extremely, they are pro the Sudanese, the, the, the Sudanese, refu- I, I don't want to call them refugees, but because many of the Sudanese do actually have families with us in Egypt intermarriages. So they are equally Egyptian one way or the other. So they are who, who see themselves as the middle ground. They are, they see themselves as ancient, the, the, the descendants of the ancient Egyptians, African, Middle Eastern, Arab, Muslim, they affiliate with, with, with all the layers. And there is the, the very left who just have, have just lost the whole, lost the whole cause and we are struggling with an identity crisis because of the many competing powers over an Egyptian identity. And I have to say, since the revolution onwards, it's very problematic for us to try to, to define or see ourselves in one way or the other. And it's a process, it's, it's complex, and it's extremely dynamic. And, and I think that this is something that would keep on ongoing because I always feel that even I am allowed to change my mind about how I see myself as I, as I go about in life. And at times for our part of the world, we tend to feel that we are denied this right. We need to fit in a certain box. Otherwise we become a problem. Oh, sorry. So I have, have a, Cairo and Alex run the country, but yeah, how true. does it work regionally? Are there regional differences? Like people there in the Delta might think. Yes, yes. Yeah. There, there, there are regional differences. I'm just talking from an identity, from the way that identity people themselves, but but we even in Egyptian Arabic, when someone is coming to Cairo, they say they are coming to Egypt, which is very similar to the way the ancient Egyptians tended to refer to the capital. It's equally, this is the country and the rest is the outskirts. And sadly, this is because of the centralization of activities, of services, everything is centralized in Cairo. And this is why I'm saying that governance is at the core of all this, the, the inequality and the injustice that is social and economic is equally at very much at at play here. This is the real cause of it. So we do have internal rivalries as well. And I have to say social media and the way it made, because now you become exposed to parts of Egypt that you wouldn't have been exposed to before. If you come from a certain class or a certain layer and you're not a historian or an archaeologist or you have no interest. I've got friends who've never been to, who might have been to many cities around the world, but they might have not been to very tiny, small cities in upper or lower Egypt because it's seen because of how they see them as underrun or like you go downhill from there and they are right because of the lack of services. But the social media made us, we were, I was just reading something today in the morning that it's just like all the windows are open on each other. And now it's very difficult to shut the window anymore because now people from very conservative, because equal culture and ethnicity and this reef, this signifies the diversity of Egypt within the very same country. Culture or ethnicity is quite diverse. So those who come from a very conservative background, when they see one of the Egyptian YouTubers or bloggers celebrating her wedding and she's wearing a very revealing wedding dress, for example, they frown on that and it becomes really problematic. How, how is her, 
husband allowing her to wear such a thing, etc. So you would see how it's extremely diverse. It's extremely multi-layered that we will never fit in a single voice or a single box. And with today's social media, and I think this is what led to the very upscale of the Cleopatra story is how we are really struggling to maneuver the dynamics of how we see ourselves because of how we, some of us came to see things that they didn't know they exist within Egypt itself. And it, we want to hold on to the, the, to the only one thing that can make us feel like, no, we're not suffering that much. We're not struggling that much. We are not so, un, so underrepresented or so uncivilized. We, 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 want to, we want to remain civilized. And so there's an aspect of pride. There's an aspect of, of pride. Of yeah. course, it's all about pride and emotional ownership. In the end, this is the, the nation's pride. Even for those who want to not see themselves as affiliated to ancient Egypt, when it comes a moment of when it was the Golden Parade, for example, no, that was the pride of everyone. This is what united all. It became later a socio-political discussion in the sense of the politics of the state and a state, the state versus the opposition and to that. But there was a huge sense of pride that, that came within this. And it is usually ancient. It comes down to ancient Egypt. That is our nation pride because mm-hmm. the other layers seem not seem demeaning, could, could, could lead to self-defeat. But it's only the layer of ancient Egypt. And perhaps it's equally the reception of ancient Egypt elsewhere. It's how the whole world, every single part of the world has a piece of Egypt and they regard Egypt as the cradle of civilization, mm-hmm. the, way, the way it's referred to. And partly our pride in ancient Egypt comes equally from how the West has constructed and appropriated ancient Egypt as the single and sole impressive ancient culture, which is not true because mm-hmm. even when we have Syrians or Lib- Lebanese claiming Phoenicians or Assyrians as great ancient cultures, you would see on social media the culture clash that happens, the Egyptians would immediately go in and say, no, it's the ancient Egyptians who were the sole creators of everything and all cultures. So we've equally adopted this narrative, the sidelining of... Patriarchal, hegemonic narratives. Exactly. All goes back to that. Narrative of how the only, the only ancient, the only civilized, and I hate to use the way civilized, but the patriarchy has created this world and it tends to see the world through a thick box of civilized and uncivilized. Mm-hmm. It's just ancient Egypt and it totally eclipsed all the other ancient cultures in, the, in even the surrounding region that it became a problem that we have to even unpack and unlearn today, us, the modern descendants of these ancient cultures today. You know, mm-hmm. when you're talking, Hebra, I'm thinking about the documentary and I'm thinking in a way what would make Cleopatra actually so interesting is that in many ways, the place, the land, the time she lived in and herself within that encapsulates yeah. all these multi-layers and this messiness and this complicatedness that cannot be boxed within a single frame, right? Yeah. yeah. And so in a way that the failings of all these series, movies, documentaries about her is the failing of acknowledging that messiness. It's the failing of trying to purify or to streamline or to like straighten all that it's about. And to me, this is where 
this is what is very sad in the end. You to impose a simple story mm-hmm. yeah. yes. and say, this yes. is the truth. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's the same thing as thinking of Egypt in the Greco-Roman world. And I do hate this. Like, I, I, I really yeah. hate the way I that do. whenever we see yeah. something from the Ptolemaic period, or I call it Ptolemaic because it's, it's many things. It's Egyptian, Greek, Roman. It's a lot of things put together. I hate it when we say Greco-Roman Egypt. Least, what is this? It's just even I mean, the, the, the settlers were so existed so even way before those dynasties came into play and those empires came into being. So it's really problematic. I guess I should I should start calling it. But you can't even say post-pharaonic. The the term pharaonic is super just, problematic. It's, it's in it's it, Egypt in the blank century. Just use just time. Egypt in this time. Yeah. Because yeah. I have fourth to say, century and yeah. fourth century Egypt. Egypt. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Because again, this is the issue of Egyptology and the colonialism of Egyptology in like yeah. having it post pharaonic, uh, pharaonic and post pharaonic. The word pharaonic is so problematic. So problematic. As if it there were no pharaohs so after. Yeah. Exactly. Kara, that's our thing. We need another episode on Roman Egypt. Or yes. 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 Because this, like, I'm sorry, like, no. Even the yeah. way it's taught everywhere within Egypt or outside, it's so problematic. It's extremely problematic. And it, I think it has led to many of the issues that we're seeing today. I mean, something mm-hmm. I like to remind people is that if you go, let's say, on a cruise in Egypt to Middle and Upper Egypt, most of the temples you'll visit are essentially Hellenistic and Roman. Like the, yeah. the, the, the Egyptian, their construction, yeah, exactly. full common board and their Asilae, you name it, right? Yeah. And then yeah, it's yeah. the second Roman. We don't call but, them Greek temples. We call them Egyptian no, temples. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. classicists do not consider this as part of their core, like the, the material mm-hmm. study, but so they should, you know? Exactly. Yeah. The Fayum portraits and mm-hmm. yeah. right? they are Roman because of how they look. Well, they were, like they could be they're Egyptians. They were living there. They were intermarriages. And we can never put an identity on someone without their consent and it just, it's so problematic. It's so problematic. The human mind, it's like, oh, now it's Roman Egypt. Now there's, there are people that are like, oh, now they're all speaking Latin, which is ridiculous because the Roman Empire was right. in Greek, but it doesn't matter. It's this simple idea that like the Arab invasion, invasion, all of a sudden exactly. all the Egyptian people are oh, swept oh, oh, aside oh, and it's a whole bunch of Arabs left behind. It's invasion. crazy. Yeah, we like yeah. our, we like our simple linear narratives when exactly. it gets messy and there's, it's yes. like you're, like you're able to move tens of millions of people around at a go. It's ridiculous. But I mean, this is the way to, the human brain works. You yeah. Know? I mean, we need to remind ourselves that in the Roman period, I would say, I mean, I mean, we have hundreds of thousands of papyri. They might be in Greek, but it's only because until Coptic appeared, the Roman authorities forbid the Egyptian language as exactly, an official language, yeah. right? But I would say, we sit by names, we sit by toponyms, all sorts of ways. I would say a good 95% of the population was still Egyptian, speaking yes, Egyptian. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So many people forget that because of these tags. Now it's this is why exactly. Now it's Roman. Or who's this ruling is or something. Pulling yeah. out because that national... ruling because of the identity of mm-hmm. Because yeah. there's that National Geographic uh, genomic testing, which, you know, DNA testing has its, oh, is its own can of worms and we can <laughs> devote time to that. But at least there is that, that, that DNA examination of modern populations that proves indigeneity. And I just throw that out there. I know it's flawed. I know it's problematic. Yeah. But to prove indigeneity is important at the same time that you're talking about a mixed population and a complicated yeah. messy situation. But the fact, Kara, that... It needs to be proven. No one no, ever argues. Fantastic. No one ever argues that Stonehenge, you know, is 
very British, ancient British people, right? Even though exactly my point. Britain has exactly been colonized point. and recolonized, Romans, exactly Saxons, Angles, Jews, Vikings. No one ever is like, oh, well, Stonehenge. But yeah. for Egypt, it's always that it needs to be exactly. proven and then Thank this you. subsidence. The to fact, this. exactly. The fact that problematic. You prove this for others is, prop- is the core of the issue here. The fact that we, and I think this is what is behind all this saga, is the fact that we need to prove this. This is where the problem sits. We need to prove that Egyptians are Egyptian. This is where all of this sits. And Mm -hmm. talking about DNA, because one of the aftermaths of the documentary, an Egyptian, she did the DNA and she was proven 93% Egyptian from descendants of the ancient Egyptians. And yeah, God, like this is what the people had to do to do because of what the trauma it brought to them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not the trauma of seeing again, it's not the color, it's the narrative surrounding the documentary and how we are being totally sidelined, even from the African story of Egypt. So I think that's a great place to stop on is that, and I think as outsiders, I never really thought about it in that emotional perspective at pride and feeling sidelined and things like this. I think we always go right to the facts and we're like, well, we don't know who your mom was and all these things as a way of dealing with it. But I think that's obviously regardless because facts really don't matter what are facts. There's no truth. Any final, final thoughts? I love that we didn't even discuss who her mother was and we'll, we'll save that for the next version of this. But I think this was important to, to hit very hard. That this is that Cleopatra is just a red herring. She's just she's just a cipher. She's a she's a symbol for so so much more exactly. trauma and pain of millennia yeah. through time. And of course, and, it's a woman. And of course, it's a and woman. Yeah, um, only bodies yeah. of women who mm-hmm. have to yeah. endure violence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us today. This was a great conversation. I learned a lot, and we'll have to have you both back on for other <laughs> side episodes because I feel like there's so much more to talk about. Um, Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. It was super fun. This has been super fun. You know, it was really good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you for taking the time. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.